Welcome to Liberating Me Podcast, the podcast where we talk about love, sex, relationship, and personal growth in the most liberating way. The podcast where you can expect candid conversation and truth bombs along the way. Hi guys, welcome back to Liberating Me Podcast, where we talk about the most unconscious things we need to be really conscious about in the areas of love, sex, relationship, and personal growth. Today will be a topic close to my heart, the colonization work. You see, I never really recognized that it is something that I should do until I moved to Canada. Growing up in the Philippines and being surrounded by Filipinos, society's traditions and expectations, I mean expectations, is part of my norm. Although growing up, I am known for breaking traditions and creating my own expectations. I questioned practices that did not serve me, and I never really realized how crucial that was until I moved to Canada. I only noticed much later that my own biases, fear, and prejudice came from a place of colonial mentality. So what is decolonization work? According to opentextbc.ca, decolonization is the process of deconstructing colonial ideologies of the superiority and privilege of Western thoughts and approaches. It also involved dismantling structures that perpetuate the status quo and addressing the imbalance power dynamic. So I was watching a TED talk of Nikki Sanchez where she breaks down how decolonization work looked like. Essentially, decolonization work is for everyone. She made an important point where she said, history is not your fault, but it is absolutely necessary and the present moment is your responsibility. Decolonization is an ongoing process that requires all of us to be collectively involved and be responsible. Decolonizing our institution means we create spaces that are inclusive, respectful, and honor everyone. We have to recognize as individuals that it's not only the responsibility of the colonized, but also the colonizers. But today, we will talk about how decolonizing work would look like in the lens of the colonized. And I'm inviting a really good friend of mine, Carrie Goring, an Afro-Canadian with Caribbean descent, who also, like me, is a love, sex, and relationship coach. So thank you, Carrie, for coming into my podcast today. How are you? I am well. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation. Always been my pleasure, but let's start by just telling us who you are and what is it that you do? <laughs> well, I am, I like to call myself a glamour. That is first and foremost on my list. I am a entrepreneur. I am a woman who has, um, lived a little life, had a bit of spice in her experience. Um, I go by the title of being a certified intimacy and relationship coach. Um, I am passionate about spreading the word for people of color and our experiences in sex and relationships and all the different flavors that that um, brings into the space of our time. I am also a podcaster myself. I am uh, a YouTuber. I kind of do the 
Yeah, right. I do the gamut, but it really is with this focus on creating new ways for people of color to stand in their sexuality and create new relationships with it. So it's interesting because you mentioned there's so many things going on. There's just live a spice life. So how did you end up becoming an intimacy and sexuality coach? Uh, The journey has been actually an interesting one. But I think for me, when I speak about or think about where it began, I think it's always been in my space and time. Um, as a young woman, as a, even as a child, I was very aware of my sexuality and my enjoyment and pleasure. And I speak often about that, that, um, you know, as young people, we come into understanding or knowing our sexuality with that childlike curiosity and discovering of pleasure. And for me, I think that was very much my thing. I remember, you know, like some of us, when you're about three years old, you have like a teddy bear or something that we cuddle with. Well, I had a cushion and I figured out very early on that when I put this cushion in between my legs, this cushion made me feel good. And um, and so I, I started to recognize and feel into pleasure. And then as I grew, for I realized that um, I was an avid reader. I really enjoyed reading. And um, I, I, from a very young age, my mother used to read Harlequin romances and books along those lines. And I would sneak around and read them. And by the time I was 12, I'd actually read probably over a hundred Harlequin romances. Oh, um, damn. <laughs> so, right? I was, I love to read. And so when, when I kind of shaped my understanding, I probably shouldn't have been reading all of them because I had a very worldly understanding of sex and maybe not also, uh, a a balanced necessarily understanding of how sex and passion, you know, really interconnect, but it was my beginnings. And I also found that I would read the newspapers often, but I would always focus on reading the advice columns. And I was interested in understanding relationships and how people navigated those waters between themselves. And then fast forward till I was 17 years old. Um, I got pregnant at a very young age. Um, I had my first daughter at 17. And it was in my exploration of my sexuality that I hit upon some of my first um, pushback against what it was to be a woman, um, a Black woman in particular, uh, and what that my my experience of my sexuality could be, where before I was pretty free and open with it, when I got pregnant, there was all of this stigma and the shame and some of those experiences that come around the experience of being um, a young mother and then having to kind of dial back my experience of being in my sexuality as a young mother. Um, settled into a domesticity of what you know life is like when you have two little ones running around, but also had to pay some bills. And uh, like many young mothers or young people, uh, that can be a hard endeavor. And I was also going to university at the time and just trying to make things work. And I fell into a career in the adult industry. I became an 
escort and a dancer, an exotic dancer. And I literally, it was for me, you know, you hear the cliche, but for me, it really did pay my way through college. And uh, it, it it's a good up, industry, right, right? It worked for me. And it also allowed me this very unique positioning to be able to stand in the face of how sexuality can also be marketed and is used in our society in a very different way. I had a much different perspective of it. And so that I also took on as I moved through the travels of my space settled into um, the business world. Some of my best contacts were made from those endeavors of being in the industry. And um, it allowed me to move on to build into the power of what I feel in my sexuality. And then finally, as I moved through the pieces of my life, I'm giving you the long version of this. Yeah, no problem. I want to hear it all. (laughs) And then as I moved through the pieces of my life, navigating relationships myself uh my what i found was that my children actually ended up being um involved or sexually abused and that set me on a tailspin of really wanting to figure out ways to help my children my girls in particular um navigate and figure out how can they stand in power in their sexuality? And with that, that brought me onto the journey of wanting to speak into this truth of recognizing how societal norms and expressions of sexuality impede some of the transitions that we go through in how we, how we, we even recognize signs or understandings of that. And for me, it's also been about then now breaking generational patterns, uh, wanting to offer healing, um, especially back to the communities that are of color, because for us, that experience is not always recognized. And we are still dealing with so many different layers come around, you know, sexual trauma is only just one of those layers. So I'm going to offer out a trigger alert as well. Um, just that as I'm mentioning that space, um, but that is a very real part of the journey and why I sit in the work that I do. Well, I really appreciate your honesty and vulnerability in sharing that piece of your journey because not everyone have the courage to even say it out loud. Like not everyone even wants to acknowledge that it happened to them or they know someone that it happened close to their life happened to them. So it's really like a tough, a, t- a tough journey to go through and you just for being open with that I really truly appreciate that and you've mentioned uh, a lot of important pieces on the journey for people of color and their sexuality is different so what made it so different in your experience because for me I'll, I'll be honest here like I never really recognized that I'm a person of color, not until I moved to Canada. Because if I'm surrounded by all Filipinos, right, if I see a white-bodied person, he's the odd one out because <laughs> we're all Asians, right? It's like I never really thought of it that I would feel really different, that I actually can tell I'm, I get uncomfortable if I'm the only Asian person in the room and everyone else is white. I start questioning who I am. I start questioning 
Am I even deserving of this space? Um, am I adequate enough to participate in the same space as these women? Like when I did my first coaching program here in Calgary, I'm the youngest. I'm only 21. The next oldest, the next youngest is like 31. And I'm the only Asian. We're two Asians in the class, one drop out, and I'm the only one left. And I have... <laughs> 70 years old, teaching me how to do coaching <laughs> and white bodied, which are like, okay, I'll take it. But I just don't feel comfortable that, oh, this is a weird space. So how was that experience for you? It's been interesting. You know, I, I really hear and resonate a lot with what you just said, Francis, because for me and in my experience, I was, I'm British born, but I am a West Indian descent. So my parents were from, um, we're from the West Indian islands. One is from the island of Barbados and one is from the island of Antigua. And so I have this very rich and strong history of understanding that I am a Black woman. And I have, you know, that um, I am a descendant of slaves, right? And so there's, there's that piece that sits in the power of who my family and our lineage is. It's made us a very proud people. But I was raised here in Canada. We came here when I was only about three years old. So my experience has been very much about, um, you know, growing up in, in wider spaces. And, and, and even that I have to juxtapose against because I was raised in Markham, which is a part of Canada uh, or Ontario, that was very multicultural. I have the privilege of growing up around so many different nationalities that I didn't even really, it wasn't my experience to understand or feel different. You know, we had, um, you know, Filipino people were were an integral part, some of my closest friends, as well as we had a lot of Jamaicans or Chinese Jamaican people or or just Asian people from South Asia all over in my space. I had friends from Thailand. I had friends, like you name it, we had friendships, Italian folks. Like it was so multicultural, the area I grew up in. And um, I also then, you know, went to school and mostly traveled around the GTA, which is very much that space. So being held out there in that was not my real experience. You come across a couple of things that might not have been great, but not really. Then I moved an hour and a half outside of the city. And that became a very jarring and interesting experience because I moved into an area of mostly white people where I am the population where I live. It's a, it's a fairly big city, but I think we are less than 1%. So I definitely, I'm a pepper grain in the sea of salt, right? And it, it was, um, it was an interesting experience to become everybody's black friend. You know, when I started to, uh, you know, build my roots into this neighborhood and it has been a jarring space because my children have been able to grow up in this expression and having to navigate what the stereotypes 
um, of what a black person shows up in. I think one of the most glaring places where you see that is in the educational system. And so for me, it, it, it embarked on, it caused me to embark on this journey of really having to show up for my children and grandchildren in the understanding of what it is to be in relation with your blackness, holding on to the pride of being a person of West Indian descent and still showing up in what, you know, is the culture of our Canadianness and what that can look like and how do we bridge those gaps and then still show up against some of the blatant racist spaces that exist you know, and a lot of it's ignorance, but a lot of it is just the fact that we live in a colonial system and the microaggressions that you come across as a person of color that sometimes just fly by you because they're part of the everyday norm, right? You know, it's it's interesting that you mentioned colonialism because <laughs> for me, growing up in the Philippines, I've never really recognized the colonial mentality, not until I moved here, like being, um, looking back at history, Philippines was um, colonized by the Spanish for 300 years or 300 to 500 years. That's why our culture and our way of life is so similar with Mexico because we were colonized around at the same time. And what I've come to recognize as I moved here to Canada, that Filipinos are actually indigenous people. Like, like technically we're very, really tribal. And, and I have noticed like little things growing up that, oh, don't have, don't put a tattoo because that's considered dirty or, you know, you're putting, you know, you're just putting a disgrace in your body when really looking back in a very tribal heritage of Filipinos, that's, that's who we are in essence where we tattoos are just representation of something bigger than we actually are right and now that we've touched on upon colonialism how does um in your opinion what does the colonization work look like it's such an interesting space like i'm listening to um you you know share with me how you as a filipino person have brought in your spaces and and how we have been affected in these colonial ways. And the one thing that comes to mind when I think about it is how complete the colonial project was. You know, um, we don't often recognize how ingrained in the fabric of how we are now in the experience of our culture, this, the, the colonial process of them giving us our religions, taking us from those fundamental things that were our original understandings. And the way that, you know, we have had to adapt and adjust to this idea of being uh, in the space of colonialism or even closer to whiteness, whiteness being the outer upper model of what we are all striving for, just simply as a way of surviving. And so what come what I think about when I think about how do we start like this work of trying to decolonize, I think it starts very much with wanting to be in the acknowledgement that this is a space that we all have been affected by the colonization of our people. That to me is the fundamental. And then exploring 
what our history was and how we can offer ourselves new ways of standing in what we we're called back to. Like there are some things like, take for instance, for me, I know that the sound of the drum, when I, uh, drumming was an integral part of my Afrocentric understandings of things. We communicated through drums. And there's something that for me, I believe belies in, in our an epigenetic level. So there's this understanding that's just imprinted into the DNA of who we are to want to know to be able to go back, to feel into what those past traditions were. And I think what it is, is though, as we move through the advancement of time, when we acknowledge that we've had these imprints from the past and bring them into where we are in the present time, meaning that we adjust for where we have stood, I think that's the intersection. We can't deny that you know, time does not stand still. But I think reclamation of those things that may have been integral parts of our, our indigeneity, our indigenous parts of ourselves, uh, is a very real thing. And I, I believe that's where we begin. It's interesting that you've mentioned that we strive for that whiteness, because in Philippines, it's so common for us. Like growing up, I've seen whitening soaps widening lotion, widening pills, widening serum, like you name it, we have all things widening. Like it, and I never really notice color for me because for Filipinos, I'm quite light skin, but it, so I never was, I was never really in that space because I'm already white skin. So it's, it's really interesting that you made a point there. And for me, the colonization work is stripping down the idea that was ingrained from my culture that West is best, white is right. Because I've, I went to the Philippines like 2018 and then I've never worked in the Philippines because when I finished university, I straight, I moved right away here in Canada. I never had a chance to work. And so I tried applying when I visited Philippines, I tried applying for jobs just to see how it's like to work in a community that I could have worked for. And I was applying for a job, a role in UNICEF. And there's this British guy who is the head of the department who's interviewing me. And I sat there and asking myself, this guy makes big money just because he's white, but he has no understanding of what the culture is like to the Philippines what makes people tick, what makes people, because the concept of UNICEF is like collect donations for the better cause. And his role is to collect that. And I sat there being interviewed by these people, surrounded by other Filipinos. I can tell energetically that the people beside me are feeling shy just because this this is person is white. And I'm thinking to myself, we're all freaking Filipinos here, guy. <laughs> like for me, I guess I had that advantage because I've already have lived here in Canada and kind of got used to that whiteness space. But for them, they put, there's this subtle putting them in a pedestal that they don't see themselves as equal as them. So that's one of the things that I've kind of like noticed whenever I come back. Another thing that I noticed about 
the impacts of colonization in my culture is making a big deal about people's accent as if it's an indication of their intellect. I don't think like in the Philippines is comprises of so many islands. And my mom is from this region where like in the middle of the country, where it's just a different language is being spoken there. And so I remember growing up, whenever I go there, I kind of avoid using the local language, even if I understand, and that would connect me to my relatives because that's their language, because I fear if I go back to the city, I'll have that accent and I'll be judged for it. Oh, you're from the small island. You're like, you know, and, and as if that's a measurement of, of the intellect of a person. Another thing that I noticed that the impact of colonization to, to us is that I, I have recognized there's a lot of ideals and values are assisted upon my ancestors and then my ancestors insisted upon it to my parents and then my parents assisted it upon me. And now that I choose to not continue on the generational expectation, I'm now being looked at as this crazy person who's disrespectful of tradition. And I don't think they realize tradition works because at the time period that it was presented, it makes sense, right? Some, t- some traditions that we have make sense at that time, but we're like in 2020 people, guys. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense anymore. To, For example, we don't have divorce in the Philippines because they believe marriage is sacred, right? But that gives that doesn't give women opportunity to leave unhealthy marriages. That doesn't give women the ability to speak for themselves when their husband is like abusing them and not just physical, it could be sexual, it could be financial. They don't, ha- they don't have means to legally walk away. However, we do have annulment, <laughs> which is basically, and it's, it can only be accessed by rich and wealthy. Because it costs, what, $5,000 or $3,000 in the Philippines to go through annulment. And not everyone has $3,000 to go through that, right? And those are just little things that the more I've kind of like lived a life as a coach, as as this Filipino, Asian co- sex coach that I am today, um, I'm recognizing, holy shit, that's why I was miserable. <laughs> it, I, I'm just, I'm so like celebrating everything that you're saying because you've touched on some very powerful points that once again, I think is almost universal when you are, um, have, when you come from a space, a, a culture, a group of individuals who have been colonized. You know, you're speaking when you were talking about, you know, not using the same dialects. It brought to mind my experiences of uh, my parents and them not wanting, making, wanting to make sure that we never picked up on our West Indian accents, you know, that we spoke proper, which was always the Queen's English which is what I speak today, which for me, I, I look at that and I think about the, when you examine the fact that when we talk about the dialects or the accents from the people of the West India, Indies, most of them are actually speaking a mix of their African 
and then, you know, juxtaposed on with the American or the Canadian accents involved in that or the Queen's English involved in these things. So there were still links into our heritage and understanding. And yet, Frick, just like you, um, that idea that speaking those ways was somehow wrong or it spoke to your your um, your intelligence levels or how you show up in the world, I think is something that when we do take a look at and examine, it, uh, it creates a new awareness of it. And you also touched something that I thought was so amazing, Francis, is when we talk about, um, you know, the Roman Catholic influence um, of, of our Christianity in as a whole, which was used very much not just as a way of enlightening most of us, but it also has been a, a huge factor at keeping the capitalist system that we exist in as well together, even though church and state are supposed to be divided. And the, the, the confines that being within those spaces have created for women. And as, but what I think is so interesting about that is women are really leading this fight into this of newfound freedom, of recognizing that the shackles that have been on us as we've existed in this system do not necessarily have to be what they once were. Women are the ones that are, because we have been the most oppressed, we are understanding that it's in our capacity to question the system in very real ways and then offer up this wisdom extraordinary strength that we hold to push back against it. And with that, and as we become um, economically and I think much more grounded in this power and the sense of our femininity, which is demonstrated by the two of us both being sex coaches and the power that that wields, I think we are starting to be able to really shake up and create this space of change that we are seeing. So for me, part of this resistance, if we want to call it that, part of this new awakening is come very much off the understandings, the knowledge, and the wherewithal of women of color. Yeah, totally. And well, while you look, I've, I really want to have, um, tune in for, for the listeners out there. I really want to have a conversation with you about that show, uh, Carrie, Little Fires, because from the beginning to end, oh my God, it's just so mind blowing of how informational it is for people of color, for white folks, understanding privilege, being able to identify. There was another piece to it when, Kerry Washington said to this white child that even if you're trying to become an ally, that doesn't, that doesn't make you an exception just because you want to, because you grew up in that community and you are part of that community who thrive and have this access, right? And I think it's just a really very important conversation. I find that, to be honest, a lot of people don't realize how it kind of like impact them in their lives like how they show up their, at their work how they how much they want to aim for some people tend to aim less just because they think they're less rather than aim big be bold and go out there right 
Yeah, I love it. And you're right. I think what you just touched upon fits really well into like a starting book that I really love. It's called White Fr- White Fragility, because I think this idea when you are close to whiteness, when you are in that space and you've never had to really question where you stand in that, it can be uncomfortable. And I think it's us acknowledging that it is uncomfortable, but if you really do want to move into that space of being a good ally, White Fragility is the name of the book, Why It Is Hard So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. It's by Robin D'Angelo. And it's a really amazing book that helps break down how we have existed in the space of this system and why it is a challenge for us to really have to look at racism as a totality because racism is also equated to power and we all want to feel and be with the cool kids right with the with what is powerful and so if you want to start at really dissecting how you stand up in that space i recommend that book once again it's called white fragility why it is so hard for white people to talk about racism by Robin D'Angelo. And um, I think that's always a really first book, first good book to start. And I am absolutely, I haven't had a moment to sit down and do a good binge watch. I'm due for one though next week. So (laughs) I would love to come back. Um, I've also heard about that program as well. And so I will definitely, we'll set a date, Francis, and let's Yes. And lastly, Carrie, before, as we wrap up our conversation, if any people of color out there, or even like white-bodied folks, want to like work with you or find your work or just learn more about the work that you do, how can they find you? How can they reach you? Uh, thank you for that. You can find me. I actually do another podcast as well. It is called Medicine for the Resistance. Uh, Medicines for the Resistance talks all about this. It's myself and my co-host, who is an Indigenous woman of Ashkenabi descent. And we talk about how do we unpack racism, especially for people of color, and how we can resist in our own unique ways against the system. Uh, So you can find us on SoundCloud, um, Apple Podcast, anywhere you find a podcast, just put in Medicine for the Resistance, we show up. Also, um, um, if you want to work with me in a capacity for intimacy and relationship coaching, you can hit me up on Instagram under at Carrie Sutras. That's my denomination. That's what I go by. And also my website at kerrysutras.com. Hit me up. I'm running a self-pleasure program in a few short days and it'll be available. And I'm so excited to share that with you. Well, thank you so much, Carrie, for coming in. <laughs> You're welcome. This was great fun, Francis. Anytime. Let me know when you want to do the next one. Wow. Thank you so much, Carrie, for coming into the show today. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember to click the follow button and remember to share this to anyone who wants to learn more about decolonization work and colonial mentality. I'll be adding Carrie's information down below, so be sure to check her out. And thank you so much again for tuning in. This is your host, Francis, and until next time.